This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. The chickens have come home to roost in a major way for the GOP's infatuation with political violence. This week saw the forceful condemnation of Representative Paul A. Gosar's fucking sickening snuff film that depicted him killing New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and attacking President Biden with a sword. Congressman Paul Gosar has been formally and publicly condemned, censured in the parlance of Congress for posting an animated video depicting him assassinating a Democratic lawmaker and attacking President Biden. For hours yesterday, Democrats condemned him and almost all Republicans defended him. When the censure vote came, the House divided mostly along party lines. The 223 to 207 vote marks the first time in more than a decade that the House has censored one of its members. The resolution also removes Gosar from his assignments on the House Oversight and Natural Resources Committees. Two Republicans, Representative Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, joined Democrats in backing the measure. The yeas are 223 and the nays are 207, with one answering present. The resolution is adopted, and without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid on the table. The House will be in order. Will Representative Gosar present himself in the well? By its adoption of House Resolution 789, the House has resolved that Representative Paul Gosar of Arizona be censured, that Representative Paul Gosar forthwith present himself in the well of the House for the pronouncement of censure, that Representative Paul Gosar be censured with the public reading of this resolution by the Speaker, and that Representative Paul Gosar be and is hereby removed from the Committee on Natural Resources and the Committee on Oversight and Reform. About a dozen Republicans stood beside Gosar in a show of support as he was censored. In remarks on the House floor ahead of Wednesday's vote, Gosar rebuffed calls to apologize. Instead, he struck a defiant tone, denouncing what he described as a false narrative that the video was dangerous or threatening. It was not, Gosar said. He compared himself to Alexander Hamilton, the first person attempted to be censored by his house. Last week, my staff posted a video depicting a policy battle regarding amnesty for tens of millions of illegal aliens. This is an enemy that speaks to young voters who are too often overlooked. Even Twitter, the left's mouthpiece, did not remove the cartoon, noting it was in the public's interest for it to remain. The cartoon directly contributes to the understanding and the discussion of the real-life battle resulting from this administration's open border policies. This body is considering passage of Mr. Biden's reckless socialist Marxist $4.9 trillion spending bill that provides $100 billion for amnesty to tens of millions of illegal aliens already in this country. This is what the left doesn't want the American people to know. Our country is suffering from the plague of illegal immigration. I don't stop pointing this out, nor will I. Gosar, who is in the face of Trump's MAGA resistance, has been disowned by his own family for his insane pronouncement and fucking lunatic behavior. The scary thing is, Gosar isn't even the most insane congressman in the House. That special honor belongs to fucking Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Make My Day Bobert. But we'll get back to them later. Ocasio-Cortez, 
who has faced threats and been accosted by other House Republicans in the past, said that Wednesday's resolution is not about herself or Gosar, but rather about what we are willing to accept. But in response to the Republican leader's remarks when he says that this action is unprecedented, what I believe is unprecedented is for a member of House leadership of either party to be unable to condemn incitement of violence against a member of this body. It is sad. It is a sad day in which a member who leads a political party in the United States of America cannot bring themselves to say that issuing a depiction of murdering a member of Congress is wrong. In attacking Gosar, she said, Republican lawmakers have embraced the illusion that this was just a joke, that what we say and what we do does not matter so long as we claim a lack of meaning. What is so hard about saying that this is wrong, she asked. Gosar has long drawn criticism for his extremist views, including his spreading of the false claim that the January 6th attack on the Capitol and the deadly white nationalist rally in Charlottesville in 2017 were part of a left-wing plot. In February, he appeared at an event whose organizer called for white supremacy. It is about time. This is not the first time that my brother has threatened the life of Representative Ocasio-Cortez. This is the second. In 2016, he tweeted another anime video with a death note. This was recorded by the AZ Mirror, and I do remember this actually from the time. Once I re recalled reading it, I was like, yes, I do remember the press reports about this. So he tweeted that he was a hero again, and there was a death note. And he listed Joe Biden, and he listed Rep Representative Ocasio-Cortez, among others. And here he is escalating it. And what we haven't pointed out about that killing on the anime video is that it's sinister to the bone, bone, bone chilling. Slices the spinal cord with two samurai swords moving in opposite directions. I found that absolutely bone chilling. So for him to say that he didn't know that somehow it was a joke and for members of the house not to step up is really for me would have been despicable. Wednesday's House vote comes a little over a week after Gosar shared a 90-second clip that appears to be an altered version of the opening credits of the Japanese animated series Attack of the Titan. The show revolves around a hero who sets out to destroy the Titans, giant creatures that have devoured nearly all of human civilization. Any anime fans out there? Gosar said in the tweet in which she shared a link to the altered video. Paul Gosar, the Republican from Arizona, has been censured. The Arizona Republican is facing official condemnation after he posted a photoshopped anime video that showed him killing Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and attacking President Biden. You're watching C-SPAN anime. Somehow we've even made this boring. Up next, the anime censure vote of Paul Gosar. Anime will now debate the censure of Paul Gosar. Oh! Sailor Moon has the floor. In the name of the moon, even your family hates you! Paul Gosar hangs lower than my Dragon Balls. Oh! What about you, Marjorie Taylor Greene from Q Anonyme? I think he's a good egg. Yugi, oh my god! You also believe in Jewish space lasers. 
Pikachu, you have the last word. Censure him! Coming up next, Steve Bannon turns himself in. In one scenario of the video, Ocasio-Cortez's face is edited over one of the Titans' faces. Gosar flies into the air and slashes the Titan in the back of the neck, killing it. In another scene, Gosar swings two swords at a foe whose face has been replaced by that of Biden. McCarthy and other GOP leaders have not publicly condemned Gosar's video. This vote isn't about a video, it's about control. This is about this incident of a member using whatever medium you want to say on the public dime, threatening and showing the killing of a member of this house. Can't that appall you, even that act? Do you have no shame? Today, we're critiquing Paul Gosar's anime. Next week, we might be indicting the Wile E. Coyote for, uh, for an explosive ordinance against the Roadrunner. The resolution on the floor today is about accountability. Here we go again, censoring speech. The most fundamental liberty we have is our right to speak, our right to talk, our right to communicate, and they're going after that today because they don't like freedom. In an interview with the conspiracy-minded Gateway Pundit, Gosar compared his video to popular children's cartoons. If my cartoon can be banned and my free speech is to be banned, then the Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon, Disney, and indeed most of Hollywood obviously could be banned as well. Not to mention Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner, Gosar said. Meep, meep. The lack of GOP appetite to punish Gosar exemplifies the tightrope McCarthy and Republican leaders are walking. While they don't want to appear tolerant of violence, they are also reluctant to anger the hardcore Trump supporters in the conference, who will be a crucial voting block in any future speaker's race. But they could soon be put on the spot with Democratic leaders eyeing a floor vote that will force them to go on the record either in defense of Gosar or crossing a chief Trump ally. You have to keep in mind that this is not Paul Gosar's first go-round, his first rodeo. He was one of those members, including his fellow Arizonan Andy Biggs, Mo Brooks of Alabama, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who actively conspired to bring about the January 6th insurrection. None of them have been condemned by any Republicans. The House Ethics Committee has an even membership. In the past, they would set boundaries around some behavior in Congress. They protected the reputation of the institution, at least to some degree. You now have not a party, but a cult. And look at all of those people who voted to uh, impeach uh, Trump. Those who voted for the infrastructure plan, you can, in a cult, maybe transgress once, but you're not going to do it twice. There are only two who have any level of courage at all, and I haven't seen anything like this. It's deteriorated more than I can could have imagined, and Kevin McCarthy, the worst leader of the House in American history, is despicably a leader of this decline in the fundamental integrity of an institution that is leading the country into a very dangerous place. The problem with all this is the fact that not a week goes by without another member of the GOP raising the specter of violence. In Trump's own words, these are deeply sick people. 
even before the incendiary social media video, Gosar has exhibited extremist and problematic behavior, including attending a conference organized by known white nationalists and attacking the police officer who shot January 6th rioter Ashley Babbitt. And earlier this year, McCarthy quietly orchestrated an effort to get Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene to visit the Holocaust Museum and publicly fucking apologize after invoking Nazi-era image to criticize vaccine mandates. But she has continued to use similar offensive language. They want to cry and, and talk about uh, Paul Gosar being violent. I think they need to take a look in, into who they really are. Green on Wednesday raised the possibility of a civil war if Republicans help President Joe Biden pass his Build Back Better agenda. Joe Biden didn't win the 2020 election, and everything we're seeing is a result of that, she told Real America's Voice host Steve Bannon. Amazing, and I fully agree with your assessment, Steve. Joe Biden didn't win the 2020 election, and everything that we're seeing is the result of that. And those key states, mine, Georgia being one of them, listed as states that will definitely swing back Republican is because we're Republican to begin with, not because we've turned blue. And we didn't elect Joe Biden uh, in 2020. Green said that she expects Republicans to take control of the U.S. House of Representatives in the 2020 elections. And it's going to frustrate our voters, she explained. They are sick and tired of electing people over and over again that continue to fail us, continue to create more debt, and continue the long, slow slide into a communist country. We need a good plan that saves America and stops communism. And we need a good plan that restores America back to the republic that it was originally founded to be. Because our freedoms are so precious, Steve, that we do not want to lose them. And the only way you get freedom back after you've lost it was is with the price of blood. And no one wants a civil war in America. But here's the 13 Republicans that purposely voted to pass Joe Biden's agenda. It's not an infrastructure plan. It's only 10% or less. And then the reality is it's phase one of the Green New Deal. Here, Catco, Bacon, Van Drew, Young, Upton, Kinzinger, Gonzalez from Ohio, Reed, Smith, Garbarino, Molly Atakis, Fitzpatrick, and McKinley. Here's the House switchboard, 202-225-3121. Call them, ask for their office, and ask them if they're going to be voting to censure Paul Gosar today and turning their back and stabbing Republicans in the back again. Call them up and let them know how you feel about them voting on the infrastructure bill, helping Joe Biden pass his radical agenda on America and passing socialist policies that have nothing to do with infrastructure. Go ahead and call the unlucky 13 and let them know you'll be donating to their primary opponent and that Marjorie Taylor Greene will be showing up in their district campaigning for their primary opponent. Listen, here, also do this for me. Don't do any death threats. That's not what we do. We're not the party of violence like the Democrats. On the same day that QAnon Queen Green called for more bloodshed to smite her political rivals, the so-called QAnon shaman was sentenced to nearly four years in prison. 
34-year-old Jacob Chansley, who became the face of the January 6th insurrection, was without his trademark fur pelts and was most definitely not carrying a spear as he was sentenced in federal court to 41 long months behind bars by Judge Royce Lamberth. For many, he was the face of the Capitol riot, wearing a fur headdress with horns, bare-chested, his face painted. He was among the first to break into the building and headed for the U.S. Senate chamber, where he sat in the presiding officer's chair that was vacated by Vice President Mike Pence and scribbled this note. It's only a matter of time. Justice is coming. He then led a kind of prayer with his bullhorn. Prosecutors asked for the maximum sentence under federal guidelines, just over four years, saying he egged on other rioters and posted vitriolic messages on social media in the months before January 6th. Speaking in his own defense during the hearing, Chansley asked Judge Royce C. Lamberth for leniency, arguing that while he broke the law, he has learned his lesson since his time in jail and solitary confinement. Men of honor admit when they're wrong. I was wrong for entering the Capitol. I have no excuse, no excuse whatsoever, Chansley said on Wednesday before insisting that he is not an insurrectionist or a domestic terrorist. I am a good man who broke the law. I also stop people from stealing and vandalizing that sacred space, the Senate. Okay, I actually stopped somebody from stealing muffins. During his nearly 45 minute rambling speech to the court, Chansley cited Jesus Christ, Mahatma Gandhi, and Stephen King prison film, The Shawshank Redemption. The Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas to argue that he has changed since the January 6th siege. I have to remind myself that some birds aren't meant to be caged. Their feathers are just too bright. And when they fly away, the part of you that knows it was a sin to lock them up does rejoice. I look up to Gandhi. I look up to Jesus. I want to mirror them, Chansley said, before later asking Lamberth to listen to my heart and my desire to live the life of Christ or Gandhi. Um, well, if you're asking my opinion, uh, you know, my opinion is meaningless. I will say that I would probably be far more effective over a beer with President, former President Trump, even if he didn't have a beer, because I understand he doesn't drink beer, but I'd have a beer. And I'd tell him, you know what? You got a few fucking things to do, including clearing this fucking mess up and taking care of a lot of the jackasses that you fucked up because of January 6th. Now, in the meantime, I might talk to him about some other things that I'd agree with him on. But my opinion doesn't mean shit. Assistant U.S. Attorney Kimberly Paschal had argued that Chansley, who pleaded guilty to civil disorder, obstruction of an official proceeding, and disorderly conduct in a restricted building on September 3rd, should receive a sentence of 51 months, noting that such a punishment would be the longest prison term yet for the MAGA rioters charged in connection with the riot. Pashal insisted that it was necessary to show this defendant and any other, regardless of their creed, beliefs, political persuasion, or otherwise, to anyone who may wish to do harm to this city, this country, this democracy. The message today is don't. What is your major malfunction, numbnuts? We should stamp don't on signs all over Washington so every time some fucking wingnut, MAGA fucktard, decides to invoke the specter of 1776 or inspire more violence, we can respond with a single word. 
don't. Very soon though, something very bad is going to happen and the violence these fucking imbeciles call for on a daily basis is going to explode in their faces. And now for the main event. While the GOP grows ever more insane, Shackling themselves to the MAGA base, violent rhetoric has become as normalized as the Pledge of Allegiance. This is what awaits us should we lose the midterm elections and Republicans assume the majority. If you aren't scared, you should be. To help me understand what's going on during this moment of fucking madness, I reached out to my friend and mea culpa return guest, yeah, John Dean. For those of you who lived through Watergate, his name is synonymous with the political intrigue of the 1970s. Dean served as White House counsel for the United States President Richard Nixon from July of 1970 until April of 1973. In this position, he became deeply involved in events leading up to the Watergate burglaries and the subsequent scandal and cover-up. Referred to as the master manipulator of the cover-up by the FBI, Dean's testimony before the House was watched by some 80 million Americans. Granted immunity, he laid out in stunning detail and intricacy how the president not only knew about, but orchestrated the break-in and burglary of the Democratic National Committee. He ultimately was sentenced to one year in federal prison, but emerged from the experience a changed and soulful individual. Dean renounced his former politics and lust for power and started a second life as an author and a speaker. He penned five books about Watergate and 10 in total, including his most recent tome, Authoritarian Nightmare, Trump and His Followers. At 83 years of age, Dean is now the last man standing from that era, especially with the passing of G. Gordon Liddy last year. He is the last connection between this nation's authoritarian past and present. The difference being, Dean thought none of this would happen again. So let's go now to that conversation. John, now that Merrick Garland did the one thing that we all hoped that he would finally do, and that start locking up Trump's eager co-conspirators. What effect do you think this will have on the overall investigation and getting others to finally comply with these congressional subpoenas? I would think it'd be pretty sobering, frankly, uh, until he... This is the first time I understand in 32 years the Department of Justice has taken a referral and exercised its criminal jurisdiction over it, and they're going to go the distance with this one. Uh, so that, that's got to be a bracing experience for all those who are now have uh, subpoenas either headed their way or they're sitting on them already. And I would think that uh, their lawyers would tell them, hey, you don't mess around with this. Uh, not only do you not no-show, once you're there, you got to answer the questions. And there are other laws involved, like perjury and false statements to federal officials that can also come to play. So you got to tell the truth when, when, once you're there. Yeah. And, you know, we're very critical on mea culpa of Merrick Garland. Many people, as I had stated in my question to you, 
was that we have all been hoping that Merrick Garland would actually do something. He would start locking these people up, that somebody would finally hold Trump to task. And I was actually quite impressed with his response uh, that he put out, and I'm going to quote it. Since my first day in office, I have promised Justice Department employees that together we would show the American people by word and deed that the department adheres to the rule of law, follows the facts in the law, and pursues equal justice under the law. Now, you know, today's charges reflect the department's steadfast commitment to these principles. And so, you know, um, today I think we're going to take it a little easy on Merrick Garland. Uh, he finally got this thing under control, because if he didn't, Congress would basically become toothless. They would basically have no power, considering without the subpoena power of Congress, what else do they really possess when you're looking for, you know, to deal with an investigation like the January 6th committee is looking? Well, I agree with you on the impact had Garland not have acted. I don't think that Congress would have become immediately toothless. I think they would have been chewing on Merrick Garland for as long as they have power on the Hill. Uh, there was a very interesting exchange back on October 18th when Garland appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee and uh, Sheldon Whitehouse uh, in, quizzed him pretty hard on a lot of issues and focused early on January 8th and what he was doing and whether there were any restrictions on this investigation. And he got Garland to say at that time, there are no restrictions uh, that they and then White House followed up and you're going to follow the money and use all investigative techniques available. And Garland's answer, in essence, was going to use all the techniques you're familiar with as a former United States attorney and some you're not fit, familiar with, Senator, since you haven't been prosecuting cases in a long time. So I, I, that was kind of encouraging to me that Garland is on track. He is not a he's a. I think a workhorse and not a show horse. So I think he's down there uh, taking care of business. Today's evidence of it. Yeah. And now what's your opinion as far as like Jeffrey Clark showed up um, before the committee, spent about an hour there, but declined to answer any questions. Now, we know that Mark Meadows failed to appear the other day for his deposition um, what do you think now happens? Of course, you know, they're going to begin the referral process against him as well. Are they going to indict him as well? Do you think maybe now his lawyers are reaching out to the committee attorneys in order to reschedule to have him come in? Do you think he comes in and then does the same thing that Jeffrey Clark does, which is, you know, to refuse to answer any questions, plead the fifth? Let's unpack that a little bit. First of all, uh, Jeffrey Clark and is showing up at the committee, but apparently refusing to answer any of the questions pertinent to the subject un under inquiry. That just literally is the language of the statute. Uh, showing up doesn't get you over the hurdle of criminal or, or potentially criminal activity. It shows an intent again uh, to defy Congress, and that that has as likely a chance to stand up in a criminal prosecution as willful uh, default, which is not showing up at all, as as is what happened with uh, uh, Steve Bannon. So I think you know I, I think that this could go a number of ways. I think Mark Meadows 
uh, has been in quote engaging with the committee until very recently. There obviously his lawyers are savvy enough to say, listen, let's try to avoid uh, any criminal prosecution on this and give them enough to to avoid that. It might also mean that both these guys have to go in front of that committee and take the Fifth Amendment uh, and plead. Otherwise, they uh, will end up uh, being forced to testify. That's the, that's their best remedy. We haven't paid much attention to the criminality of what happened on January 6th. We know that, yes, the people who invaded the Capitol. But how about those who were behind the scenes? How about the Mark Meadows? How about the Steve Bannons? How about the Jeffrey Clarks? Uh, Michael, if this isn't a very broad-based conspiracy to obstruct Congress or to defraud the government, both of which are pretty serious criminal felonies, uh, I don't know what they are. And so there's criminal conduct involved here. The only thing that sort of surprises me at this stage is that there isn't a grand jury that's busy digging this out uh, down in the courthouse and that these people aren't saying, please don't call me before Congress because I have criminal liability before a grand jury and or either that or give me immunity here on Capitol Hill so I can tell you what I know. And that will, of course, uh, immunize them downtown as far as the grand jury, too. Yeah, well, you know, interestingly enough, um, as you're well aware, I, I testified about nine times before various different congressional committees. People are generally aware of the one that was public, but don't forget that there were eight others that were behind the skiff. And one of the people that I was really, truly impressed with from the very beginning is Representative Jamie Raskin uh, from Maryland. And I like what he turned around and he said about Steve Bannon. He goes, the grand jury in this case was presented with overwhelming and irrefutable evidence of Steve Bannon's violation of a congressional subpoena. And then he finalized by saying, the justice system of the United States is not going to tolerate these contemptuous violations of the rule of law. I mean, I don't think anybody has said it better than Jamie Raskin. That's he, he, he is very good. He's a, he's a former professor. He's got the gift of simplifying what for some can be complex uh, or stating bluntly what those who don't want to listen and understand uh, need to under, appreciate. And he's done so very well. That, that committee uh, it has a unique composition. Uh, first of all, the fact that there really is a unanimity amongst them to be not just nonpartisan, uh, but to uh, or to be bipartisan, but to be nonpartisan. And I think that that's become evident as they really have proceeded as a united front. Uh, there, yes, the, the Republicans basically stiffed the committee. And the speaker asked two well-credentialed Republicans to join the committee, which they did with Liz Cheney and Kinzinger from Illinois. Uh, so it's a bipartisan committee as well, but it's it's really proceeding in a, in a nonpartisan way. And Raskin is one of the uh, powerhouse legal minds. He and Adam Schiff are as good a lawyers as you're going to find anywhere. 
Yeah. I mean, look, y- y- when you say it's uh, nonpartisan, no matter what happens, unless Trump is exonerated, he's going to, of course, scream partisan, 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 witch hunt, witch hunt, witch hunt. And the funny thing is, you know, Steve Bannon's lawyer, this guy, Bob Costello, Robert Costello, who actually tried to infiltrate my joint defense agreement, which was amazing. And that's all that information has already been released out there. But he told the committee that, um, and I, I, I was blown away when I saw this, that the executive privilege belongs to President Trump and that we must accept his direction and honor his invocation of executive privilege. Now, I, I don't even know really what to say, which is why I'm so thankful to have you on Maya Culpa, because it's one of the few times that you're going to actually hear me tongue-tied and without comment other than, Bob, you stupid ass. I mean, are you freaking joking? Seriously? I mean, you do understand that Trump lost, executive privilege belongs to the president, and that Donald is not the president? What am I missing here? Well, their briefs are arguing that there is some sort of residual uh, executive privilege for a former president. This is really not totally resolved by the courts. Nixon did the same when he left office, claimed a, a residual uh, executive privilege, but it was not quite 100% struck down in Nixon versus GSA. It's really kind of a bad ruling. It's kind of a confused ruling. Uh, it's the basis for the existing executive order that was issued by Barack Obama uh, at the outset of his presidency that tried to clean it all up and said, yes, former presidents who are out of office can seek to invoke executive privilege. Uh, That's in the executive order. But it's very limited, and it's also controlled by what the incumbent president wants to do. When the incumbent president decides that he's not going to invoke executive privilege, that's really the final word, because uh, that's what's going to be litigated now, is whether that teeny residual power of a former president to claim privilege over documents that uh, he's already agreed under a law, existing law, the, the Presidential Records Act, don't belong to him. They really belong to us, all the taxpayers. That's what happened as a result of Nixon's threat to destroy his tapes. The Congress reached out, took the tapes and all of his papers that he might destroy and said, those don't belong to you, notwithstanding the tradition since George Washington, that they're going to belong to the American people. And that's the existing law and has been that way uh, since the Carter presidency when he signed it into law. And so Trump would have to go in uh, under that law and say, listen, I'm not going to play by the rules here. I'm going to make some special exception for Donald Trump. That's typically his thinking. Uh, but it's not going to work. He's can't, he just can't brush aside uh, 40 years of law that's been on the books that these papers don't belong to him even, and they're not in his possession. So good luck. Right. Except what Donald is going to do is he's going to try to drag out the clock in hopes that the House ends up turning Republican and then having enough clout still with the Republican Party to get enough Republicans to create enough tumult that it's going to end up just dragging on and on and on. And that's really his game. It's always been his game. Drag it on and hope to get a positive result out of the yeah. out of the lawsuit. 
everybody knows his modus operandi now. His, his, his MO is crystal clear. That's why the trial judge, when they sought to enjoin uh, the Art National Archives and turning this material over to the uh, January 6th committee, uh, she acted very quickly. Uh, the Court of Appeals and the three-judge panel that gave him a stay, an administrative stay, uh, did the same. They set the hearing, the briefing schedule for uh, the 22nd of this month and then oral arguments on the 30th. They might well, and I'd be surprised if they're not, are quietly deliberating, looking at the, uh, the entire record from the lower court has been sent up. I checked the docket yesterday. Uh, they have all the papers in front of them. They're deciding how they're going to come down on this right now. And then they will be listening to hear if there's anything that comes up in oral argument that they don't anticipate. But given the quality of the oral argument in before the trial judge, uh, Donald's got two sole practitioners who've never played in this area before representing him. He doesn't have the he doesn't have the big league Washington lawyers on this issue. Uh, there may be some think tanks that are quietly. <laughs> which, is, this, which is shocking because he took $150 million from the American people in order to use for things just like this. And he still won't reach into his pocket and pay. He doesn't want to pay for anything. No. And it, it, the, the quality of the lawyering he's getting is equal to what he's paying, Michael. Uh, they, they left an awful lot on the table in their in their briefs that they didn't know where to go. Uh, the oral argument was uh, by another lawyer who hadn't briefed it, and he came on late. Uh, and the judge penned him down on a number of occasions. No, nothing more important than their claim that he will be irreparably damaged if this information comes out before the January 6th committee. The judge kept pushing. Well, how is he how's he hurt? And the lawyer couldn't say, well, he might be indicted and sent to jail <laughs> based on his behavior. <laughs> couldn't yeah. say it's going to be hugely embarrassing to him how bad his behavior was. Uh, so he, he couldn't make an argument before the lower court at the trial level why Trump will be irreparably damaged. Uh, he'll we be all irreparably, know. yeah, he'll be irreparably damaged because ultimately the papers will show that he probably held the National Guard from coming in and assisting with the Capitol Police uh, when the insurrection was taking place. There's no doubt that many people called him when this was going on. We need to do something. We need to do something. And he was enjoying watching all of these Trump flags, these um, MAGA idiots uh, over there, you know, uh, storming the Capitol in his name and in his honor. But, you know, John, I want to move on because there's something that I just found which was interesting and funny all at the same time. On Wednesday, in response to a tweet from Cher, and yeah, I mean Cher the singer, uh, about the prospect of a Republican return to power, you replied, and I quote, Take it from someone who knows. It will be far worse than you can imagine. The American experiment will have ended. May it not happen. Now, if you would do me the favor, walk my listeners and me what this would look like, and what we have to do to prevent it from happening. Give us a little background on, a little juice on what this was about. Well, Cher laid down a list of what she thought could be the, the horribles uh, if, indeed, Republicans or Trump uh, were reelected. Uh, I took a look at her list, which wasn't bad for a non-lawyer, 
but really kind of didn't envision the fact that we'd have a bunch of authoritarian uh, personalities running the government. And we would be we would not recognize the government because the, these people all don't think the law applies to them. Uh, it's really quite remarkable. So whatever worst case Cher was imagining, I want to assure her that these personalities will go way beyond that. Now, what what's the risk of this happening right now? It's pretty high. If Democrats don't stop making their sausage in public uh, and watching their president sink in, in, in approval ratings. First, they're going to lose in 22 when the Republicans take control of Congress. And then they're going to lose in 24, uh, regardless of who runs. Uh, so I think the, 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 uh, the odd year election in Virginia and New Jersey should have told them They've got to get their act together sooner rather than later. The polls are telling them that they're not doing well. And I think on general congressional polls, they're so they're they're so broad, they don't tell us a lot other than the fact that the incumbents are in trouble, which is enough to should be enough to stimulate them. That that was the point of my tweet. So what is it that Democrats need to do? I mean, give the advice of somebody who's worldly, scholarly, who's been down this road before. What do Democrats like Joe Biden actually have to do in order to increase those poll numbers? Because I've been critical of Biden in certain areas, right? specifically with Merrick Garland, the DOJ, and holding Trump and his allies responsible for many of the things that they did during the administration. But I have been much less critical in regard to Afghanistan where he was he got terrible marks on I for, I for one believe that the Afghanistan um you know departure was actually done very well it was organized they moved 125,000 people out of Afghanistan now of course the republicans want to only concentrate on the sad loss of life those 13 individuals by the suicide bomber but 125,000 people removed from a war zone in a, in a period of two weeks. Trump couldn't have done that in two years. The reason, because he would never have put forth a plan because he doesn't give a shit. Well, not only that, he, does, he doesn't hire competent people. It, 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 as we are getting these post-presidential uh, profiles of the people he was surrounded by, uh, you know, he has, his, he has his body man running the personnel department, over 4,000 political appointees and all this guy's interested in are loyalty tests. Uh, You know, it's crazy. I mean, not getting qualified people or making or removing qualified people shows Trump's how he envisions running the government. So we have we have a pretty good record on that. And that's adds to the potential nightmare if this man ever were to get back in. So what what should the Democrats be doing, which was your original question? I think that they're not very good at messaging. They have actually accomplished an awful lot uh, from picking up and running a very effective uh, vaccination nationwide program. Uh, While, yes, Trump was did get that started. He should be he gets credit for that. But I don't think Trump could have ever gotten the administration of the vaccinations uh, anywhere near where we are. And we're still struggling to get more people vaccinated. Uh, So. As I say, Democrats are just not good at messaging. They have passed a bipartisan 
infrastructure bill that uh, the Republicans are saying, well, hell, it wasn't two trillion like we wanted to do. We plan to do. Well, they the fact of the matter is, Michael, they couldn't do it. Uh, they had it up for week after week. And we had infrastructure week uh, with Trump. Never happened. So now we've passed it. And we're wait, you know, nobody knows how it's going to affect them. They haven't built an effective messaging machine. It should be hammering home, you know, where where these shovels are going to be uh, digging and what bridges are going to be fixed. And thank Joe Biden and his the Democrats for this. Rather, we're hearing now more squabbling about is Joe Manchin going to vote for the big package or not? Uh, the government's really become all about Joe Manchin. That, you know, that that's, again, uh, the White House can control a lot of that. They can keep a disgruntled solo like Manchin happy and threatened. Uh, there is a there, there is a carrot and stick routine that good White Houses use for guys like Manchin, who is he's just out there uh, freelancing. And we, we have no idea what the Democratic plans are because of one man. What's his whim tomorrow? Uh, so I, th- I just see poor management. I see good leadership, uh, in the party. I mean, Nancy, uh, has pretty much, uh, neutered the gang, if you were the squad and, and, uh, kept them in line. Sure. They didn't vote, but th- she didn't bring that bill to the floor, not knowing that 13, if not 25 or 30 Republicans were ready to come in and vote because it's so important for their districts to have those, all those uh, good things that are going to happen with that infrastructure legislation. So anyway, it's messaging. uh, It's, it's cut out the public squabbling, uh, corral the, the people like mansion uh, or they're just, they're, they're going to lose in 22 and 24, both. It's uh, the Republicans are very good at running a tight ship. Uh, the fact that there were so few that voted to impeach this president, or the former president, the former guy, uh, is amazing to me. Uh, but Mitch was able to keep the Senate uh, virtually in line, uh, save Mitt Romney, who has a conscience. Uh, and they stayed pretty unified, though, on policy. And he can pretty much move as a block. And they do. They need every one of their votes. They can't. Uh, they've been unable to get across the aisle. Well, the infrastructure bill is an, an exception, and there are other things like that they could be doing. I don't know why they are so inclined towards big bills. Why not do them incrementally? If, they, if they'd have done that in a dozen bills, they'd say, people say, gee whiz, look what the what Biden people are doing. He's got some Republicans coming along. Uh, so anyway, there are different ways to skin it. It's easy to be an outsider and, and, and take shots at what they're doing right and wrong. But uh, I think messaging has been miserable so far by the Democrats. Yeah, I mean, let's not forget the pandemic relief package. I mean, how many people were able to keep food on their table to keep the electricity and the heat going in their homes, uh, you know, to keep their car payments going and so on um, as a result of it? And trust me, I know I know Trump. It didn't matter to him. And that's why, you know, he was pushing Republicans to fight even the pandemic relief package. You you may remember they wanted to do X amount and then they came back with a secondary amount. But that's just Donald Trump.
Welcome to Missed Riffs, stories of artists who dreamt of becoming the next Rolling Stones, but ended up rolling burritos instead. Can I get extra guac on that? I'm Matt Pinfield. Today we are looking at an actual success story. Legendary Ford Bronco pitchman John Bronco was known for his bushy mustache, incredible catchphrases, and machismo exterior that made him one of the most popular TV pitchmen in history. This truck's tougher than your mama's daddy. So hit the road. It's got my name on it, so you know it plays dirty. Yes, baby, it's meaner than a wet panther you forgot to invite to your birthday party. But not many people knew Bronco actually had a pretty successful music career. The story goes, one afternoon, John was doing some Ford radio promos when he found a guitar in the booth. It changed his life forever. Mama, she made me Bronco. The track Mama Named Me Bronco is the only commercial jingle ever to go triple platinum. Yeah, man, I was the engineer on that session. It was like it was like watching Jimi Hendrix cut Foxy Lady or like Johnny Cash, Ring of Fire, or you know, Limp Biscuit, Scott Stapp, you know, just so heavy. I mean, you just knew you were capturing something like historic. John Bronco even knocked Jackson Brown off the top of Bob Magazine's Hottest Dudes in Rock number one ranking. I love you, John Bronco. The new Ford Bronco, cause daddy wants a pony too. John Bronco also had a classic jingle he wrote for his breakfast cereal, Bronco's, called Get Bucked. Hi. Who's ready for breakfast? Get bucked with super flavors. This bucket Bronco's gonna kick you out of bed with the no crunch and the hint of sharp cheddar and pineapple cherry flavored gummy horseshoes. The track was later covered by reggae band Rasta Rasta and became a huge hit in Europe. John Bronco! Get Get ready to shred the roof of your mouth! To learn the whole story, check out John Bronco and John Bronco Rides Again, currently streaming on Hulu. I'll leave you with Bronco's final song, The Ballad of John Bronco. Go, go, Bronco mode It's gonna be insane We're going all terrain Grab your four by four We're gonna take off all the doors There's plenty of features you'll enjoy So buckle up there, cowboy Go, go, Bronco Moe Go, go, Bronco Moe Bronco Moe But I want to move on, uh, John, for a second. Yesterday, former Watergate prosecutor Jill Wine-Banks wrote the following about Judge Chuckin's decision rejecting Trump's injunctive relief. 
that it, and I quote, makes clear the profound importance of the Watergate SCOTUS decision that executive privilege is not absolute and yields to public's right to know and reminds me of how crucial evidence like presidential call logs was to us. Now, first off, if you would, let's discuss the decision and specifically that she mentioned you in her decision. What was that in relation to? And second, how important do you think Trump's White House call logs will ultimately prove to be? Well, the mention of me was with regard to the Senate Watergate Committee's effort to subpoena tapes and my conversations. Uh, she used my title. She didn't get down to uh, uh, a particular person, but she uh, that, that uh, was an effort by the Senate Watergate Committee to get seven of my conversations with Nixon. They lost, incidentally. And the reason they lost was because uh, the court, the Court of Appeals, the, the three judge circuit uh, or panel uh, said that information is already available to the, the Congress via the House Judiciary Committee, which was running an impeachment proceeding. So they said it was duplicative and on that basis turned down the Senate. Uh, but the larger, what Jill is talking about was U.S. versus Nixon, where the court said, yes, the special prosecutor is entitled on behalf of the grand jury, who was invest which was investigating Watergate, to get this information, particularly since it was a trial subpoena. Uh, Nixon's former chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, his former attorney general, John Mitchell, his former top policy advisor, uh, had all been indicted and were awaiting trial when the court ruled on that. And they said, this is the trial. This is a trial subpoena. And we need the, the, the government needs these to fairly try these cases. Uh, what Jill is saying is, yes, they got the the uh, the president's phone logs, which enabled them to dig out other conversations uh they weren't they're actually it's called the president's daily diary is what she's really referring to uh they're published online uh the nixon ones are online most past presidencies have those online somewhere connected with that presidency and they show the president's moves all day from uh, if trump was staying in the residence until noon every day that's what they're going to reveal uh you know it when he called somebody from there that that will reveal that too won't probably reveal his cell phone calls i'm sure that's one of the reasons he wanted to keep his cell phone but anything that went through the white house switchboard all that's going to be chronicled and it's it's a uh, diary that is prepared daily by secret service people uh as to the location of the president you know exact time he is in a location uh jotted down reported in uh the white house operators do the same for all their activities uh there are some secretarial people who make notes who are, are also picked up and this is all collated by the national archives who has somebody on staff at the white house to prepare what is called the president's daily diary and it's a remarkable document because it it, it uh, literally tracks where the president is, who he's with, and in essence, you can figure out pretty quickly what he's doing during those during those times. So Jill's right on, and that's obviously some of the information that uh, is being sought by the January sixth <laughs> committee. You know, John, I can tell you what his his daily log is going to look like. Right up at eight a.m. 
right? 9 a.m. in the residence watching Fox News, right? Newsmax, CNN, and MSNBC. 10 o'clock, right? Getting dressed. 11 o'clock downstairs. 12 o'clock ordering lunch into the, when, into the when, room. When does he do his hair in there? <laughs> well, that's that's the between the eight to nine a.m. and that's what you're going to find. You're going to find that he was late to get downstairs. That there would never and he's, everything with him was telephone calls. But also the other day, right? The appellate court paused the release of Trump's documents, right? And you laid out the upcoming dates for the submissions and the hearings that are due to come up. And then I talked about Trump potentially running out the clock by stalling this past the midterms. Now, if this goes all the way to the Supreme Court, how long do you see that taking? And do you believe that his stacking of the court with judicial conservatives will help save his ass? It could. Uh, the timetable right now is it, it, probably the earliest you can get a decision out of the three-judge panel will be the first week of December. That's if they're already deliberating and doing rough drafts of what they want to ultimately write, uh, which I suspect they are. So uh, after that, there will be an effort, whoever loses, and I think it's clear to me, based on the available law, but based on the uh, lower court uh, decision that uh, said no, that uh, Trump can't block this information from the committee, very strong opinion, too, very well done, uh, particularly given the time in which she did it. Uh, plus, she had uh, some of the best lawyers on these subjects who filed amicus briefs that they could save the law clerks and the judge a lot of time digging out some of this, uh, some of this lore and law, uh, which was important to her decision. But so how long it'll take? Early December, you get a ruling from the three-judge panel, which will be against Trump. Trump will then take it to the Supreme Court. Uh, that's the big $64,000 question. Typically, the court, there's no reason they have to take this, uh, but do, are there four votes uh, or five votes that will get it up there? Uh, I don't know. It's a real question. There's a true conservative legal scholar could have a lot of trouble uh, taking this case on. And if they do, I'm afraid it's going to get very protracted, but how? what's that mean? That probably means uh, at least until uh, the end of the first, the opening term of the year uh, in uh, next year. So June of, of uh, next summer, sometime in June would be when they end that first term would be the likely time you'd get a decision if it goes to the Supreme Court. That's not too late for the, for this committee to, uh, uh, to make use of that information, because by that time, I think they'll they'll have had some witnesses uh, quietly come in and give depositions, particularly given the Bannon ruling today, that they might realize that the price has just gone up for loyalty to Donald Trump. Now, I know all about Trump's stall tactics. I did it for him for over a decade I, nothing is new when it comes to Donald Trump. It's just a regurgitation of the same shit that he was pulling at the Trump organization because he really believes that he is the dictator of the United States of America when he was the, you know, when he was president. So I want to give it just a thought here. And then I really, 
I'm anxious for your opinion onto it. You had an, an interesting solution on this issue. And I quote, a grand jury can get all info Trump seeks to withhold from the January 6th inquiry. And the Senate Watergate Committee did not get giddy from Nixon via the courts, which want parties to negotiate. Trump won't. Answer, in 6 to 24 months, Trump wins by stalling. Now, if you would explain to my listeners how investigators can beat the stall and get the information it needs, because we don't have 6 to 24 months. We can't allow him to stall. The longer he stalls the better the chances that he wins. Yeah, I think, you know, if the if this information surfaces before 2022 uh, and ha- makes a big splash, and if, if Trump is as complicit as I think both you and I assume he will be proven to be, uh, that's obviously can affect the midterms, uh, which is, you know, what they want to avoid. But Let's say this goes to the Supreme Court. Trump is not going to win at the Supreme Court. He, however long this he might he might get a narrow uh, adjudication on some information where it relates uh, does not relate to planning, for example, an insurrection. Uh, but there'll be, it'll be very narrow, and all he'll have accomplished is to uh, slow the process down. So. Uh, the uh, you know my feeling as to what an investigator has got to do uh, to get this information is to try to break as many witnesses as they can. This is a you notice this is not your typical uh, flashy, uh, not even close to the level of the Senate Watergate Committee, which was very public, uh, cameras going, uh, new stars born every day. Uh, as a result of the public attention that turned to it by the summer of, of 73. So that, that's not what's happening. This is all being done by deposition. Uh, this is not uh, this is not a showy undertaking. So I think if they proceed as they are, uh, they're, they may well crack this case uh, largely unbeknownst to the public. Uh, Kissinger, uh, Kinsinger, uh, said something today on a radio interview I heard when I was driving uh, that uh, he was he was pressed on had they already discovered complicity by Trump and he dodged the question and said that we're really taking a very broad look and I'm not going to I'm not going to get out in front of my skis if you will and uh, disclose where we are uh, but he said you know we are looking at those kind of issues along with what we're we're finding startling information it's a real eye opening about foreign governments involvement now that's a new line I hadn't heard about. Uh, and that wouldn't have happened without Trump's complicity also, Michael. So, uh, you know, I at this point, I'm not worried that uh, this is going to get, that Trump is going to succeed. I, I think it's highly problematic if the Supreme Court even takes this case. The, the, the justices that will get taken up there are going to be so patently political that it would further damage a court that is already damaged. Uh, this is a court that is about to uh, dump Roe in some way or another. It would It's just not what is obviously something they don't even want. So whether it'll even go up to the Supreme Court is a real issue. Roberts is very sensitive to the fact that his court could be marked 
as just nothing but a bunch of partisan hacks that was put on there by the president and not something that history will have any particular respect for. Uh, so that, that that leans over him and shadows over the Supreme Court. So whether they'll first, I think it's a big hurdle to get this to the Supreme Court when there's particularly if there's a unanimous and strong opinion at the, uh, the three judge panel level, which is very likely. And if the if a full in banc hearing takes place, uh, the law just isn't there to support Trump uh holding this up just not there so uh, they would they they unlike the supreme court they can't carve new law they can try to twist interpretations and fill in gaps but the the court of appeals is very limited in what they can do and there's just not much room for them to create anything that other than to slow the process down at this point uh and they'll be they'll be hammered by that uh any of the panel who uh, that happens. As you know, the D.C. Circuit is is overwhelmingly Democratic. Uh, so uh, there are most of the Republican judges are in senior senior status and would not likely participate uh, in a full uh, hearing of the entire court. So, I, as I say, I think that's that, that's what I'm hoping for. And will it'll be the logical uh process of the other thing is you know michael these these judges all know what trump's doing and they don't i don't think hold this man in very high esteem uh he 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 they know that he will trash them he tra- he loves to trash judges uh that doesn't look as a threat to them it looks to a sort of a how they must come out institutionally strong in their decisions and the fact that he wants to trash particular judges um, and has done so in the past uh, is not going to play in Trump's favor uh, with the potential people who might want to rule for him. And that's that. Now, that would also be true at the Supreme Court if they decide to take the case. And if they, you know, they would have to write new law uh, that would dilute executive privilege because it's what's what's at issue here is Biden's yes. refusal to, to uh, enforce it. Uh, he says there is no executive privilege. Trump is saying, well, there is for me. I'm a former president. This would weaken the, the, the concept of executive privilege. Executive privilege expanded presidential power. This would weaken presidential power. So, so, this, is, so this, is, this brings me up to a question that I have because I'm curious. Yesterday, um, you highlighted something that Lawrence Tribe said on the last word. And you wrote, Larry Tribe explained to Lawrence O'Donnell that with Judge Chukin's powerful ruling on Trump's claim of executive privilege, a claim without merit, if Attorney General Garland um, does not act on the prosecution of Bannon for contempt of Congress, then Garland himself is obstructing Congress. Explain what you meant here, and why do you think that Merrick Garland hasn't acted to enforce the Bannon subpoena? What I was quoting was a jaw-dropping statement by Lawrence Tribe, who isn't given to hyperbola. Uh, Garland is one of his former students, and he was saying that if the attorney general doesn't act, he is obstructing Congress. And I thought, my God, you know, I, I don't know how long the AP will take to get that story out. So I was had my 
Twitter right at, there at my fingertips. So I, I paraphrased the statement and put it out because it, it, it is a jaw dropper. And what's he mean? He means that there is statutory uh, law that says if you obstruct Congress, uh, you're misbehaving. If Garland refused to take action, he could be impeached for that, is what, what uh, Tribe was saying, that he has to act. And he, now he has. Uh, and based, and he, we also know that uh, from the inside reporting that he was waiting for uh, the judge's ruling, uh, which came down, what, two days ago. I mean, it's fun. As I'm asking you all of these questions, all that's running through my head is what a fucking mess Donald is creating in our democracy. It's incredible that one man, one man alone can do so much damage to our democracy, which has existed far longer than his four years. I mean, twice impeached president. Man, oh, man. And, you know, to sit there and I'm watching and because uh, I'm still active in the district attorney here in the AG's case, as well as, you know, I'm familiar, of course, like everybody else with the Georgia case and now the D.C. case with the presidential inaugural committee with the theft and the stealing and the grifting and the and the lying and the cheating and the taxes and, you know, all the other stuff that Trump has has done that is just apparent it's written right there it's on a fucking silver platter ready for somebody just to serve on him and yet somehow or another through stall tactics through legal maneuvering through the fact that you know he was the former president the guy manages to escape he he is he, he is gifted at at uh, the cons he runs and not being held responsible for him no question one of the uh, since you're referring to my Twitter account, I, I retweeted something that uh, that, that I, Ann Coulter said that really surprised me that she would uh, lay into him. She said, uh, you know, I understood he was a narcissist and all the other negative traits we all know about the man. What Coulter, Coulter says, what I didn't understand is how stupid he is. And that's that's the, that has been one of the shocks for me. Also, this is just not a smart man. And Michael, I think he's at the end of the rope. I think he's hanging on by threads at this point, and it could well get him this time. Well, I I don't I don't know. You know, like like I said, uh, I'm seeing uh, slowdowns. I don't understand uh, just with the district attorney in the AG's office. They. You know, I, I've said to well, Garland. Garland uh, cannot wade in and and of be course not seen totally as a prosecutor. You know, the presidency and this plays both ways. What you don't want to have happen is where a former president is attacked by an incumbent president. Then you start the tip for tat route that will truly destroy democracy. Uh, if we start using criminal process uh, after a president leaves. What I think that Garland is doing is letting this thing uh, bubble up. The, when I, the thing I'm referring to is January 6th and the insurrection bubble up from the bottom and uh, become so apparent as the evidence surfaces uh, that uh, Trump's guilt and complicity will become self-evident. And what people are really going to be voting on then is, is this man so anti-democratic, small d, that you could risk having him be president again. 
Uh, and I think that I think hopefully that's what we will learn from the January 8th committee. That's why I'm sure Trump doesn't want this stuff out. He's been told it is not going to play well. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I think the January 6th committee has a lot on their plate. Very much no different, I hate to say it, as our Attorney General Tish James and our District Attorney here, Cy Vance. They have a massive, massive role to play in the prevention of this man becoming our supreme leader, because that's all he cares about. That's he doesn't want to be president because he wants to do good for America. He wants to be president to line his pockets. That's all that this of, is about. stay out of jail. Too. And stay out of prison. When, when he sees Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, he's sitting there and he's like, I should own 25% of each and every one of their companies. No different than Putin does in Russia. He feels that he is the supreme leader. It's really, it's just a narcissistic sociopathy that... Nobody can explain. But I want to ask you this, John. If you had to rank those most likely to face a sedition charge, and what we're going to do right now is we're going to make something called an MSP trophy, the most seditious politician. Who would you make your top three and why? Because my top three would, of course, be John Eastman, Jeffrey Clark, and Rudy Giuliani. And well, if Rudy would, Giuliani, would, being that he's not he's not a current politician, I'll just substitute him in for Josh Hawley. I will I will uh, put one in front of your list that I think tops your list, and that's Steve Bannon, who's publicly announced he wants to des- destroy the administrative state. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure Bannon is delighted that he has been indicted for a misdemeanor. He's willing to to go to jail for a year and pay a $100,000 fine if, I, if he gets hit with the full thing because of the attention he's going to get between now and that day where he can again just use this as uh, attacks on by the, by the deep state against Trump's base that uh, Bannon has tapped into is, is very much his base. He, he has been on this crusade to destroy democracy for decades now. Uh, the fact that he ended up as Trump's campaign manager and his White House advisor is startling. Uh, you're, you're seeing the man for who he is. Uh, obviously, he he was sloppy. Steve was too much with multiple shirts for Donald Trump, who's a little bit a little bit more uh, uh, dressed up than uh, sloppy Steve, uh, as Donald calls him, was. But uh, nevertheless, Trump is back fully embracing uh, the distorted evil genius of this, this guy who really wants to destroy America and be known for it. Look, let me say this to you right now, Steve Bannon, but, but your list very- isn't bad. Your list is not bad. Let me tell you, those are, those are people who are engaging in a conspiracy to uh, overthrow democracy. No question. No question. I mean, we got to throw Lauren Boebert into there. Um, you know, there's there's so many. Even Ted Cruz. I sit and I look at Ted Cruz in a very different way than I looked at him before. And I never liked Ted, right? And not just because you know he's a Republican uh, and so on. I never liked him because I always found him to be arrogant um, and arrogant to a point where it's it's obnoxious. But listening to him now. 
making the arguments that he's making with the Nazi salute and so on. That's what Steve Bannon wants to turn this country into, an autocracy. And he knows that he'll never be the Adolf Hitler, but he'd be happy being the Goebbels or being the Himmler. And that's Steve Bannon. But I want to now make a little message to Steve. Don't forget, I spent 13 months in Otisville. And in that 13 months, I I got the full experience. Of course, when I first got there, you know, I was at the uh, satellite camp, which is like a really ugly sort of YMCA type camp. Uh, But people were absolutely fine. The food was disgusting, but I had Tony meatballs in the kitchen. So I would, you know, (laughs) I got a couple of extra favors um, in terms of the food and what I didn't. I would make myself a lot of tuna. You eat a lot of tuna there in the in the bag, which is really disgusting. But I also spent time in the shoe, which is horrific. And then I spent 51 days in solitary confinement, which was really, really bad. And I promised Steve And I know that he did, you know, that he saw the inside of the system as well. Um, He's going to do a year for Donald. Rest assured, when he comes out, Donald will be saying, Steve who? Steve what? Steve? Steve? Oh, yes, Steve something or another. I know he worked for me somewhere. And and that's what's going to happen. He will be forgotten and he will spend an enormous amount of time in solitary confinement. He's not going to be revered as this sort of icon individual coming into an institution, especially considering many of the inmates that are there are not thrilled with any of the things that Steve Bannon himself did. For example, the promotion of the Muslim ban. It was not an immigration ban. It was a Muslim ban. And Donald told me himself when I was in the Oval Office uh, back in March that this was Steve Bannon and Steve Miller. White supremacists don't do so well in these smaller jails and so on. And I think Steve Bannon's going to have a very difficult time over the course of those, you know, of, of those 12 months. You could rest assured. I, ha- I can't imagine what defense he's going to put up. Uh, to the charges that are against him. He's got two counts. One is no show and two for, to, for his testimony and his no show for producing documents. And it's pretty much a slam dunk case. I think he will take it to trial uh, because he wants the attention. Uh, he wants to say, ah, just another witch hunt. These people are terrible. They're going after all Trump's people uh, like me. Uh, but it, 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 at some point, uh, you know, those people are pretty well known now. They are uh, not more than 30 percent of the population. There, there are millions of them, but they can't take control of the system. Uh, there are not enough of them, and they'll offend more people in the process that will could help well keep democracy intact. And that, that you know, that's where, you know, I... I was listening uh, this morning while driving to the end of Woodward's book, Peril, where he talks uh, about how some of Trump's really remarkable behavior doesn't doesn't describe it. But I kept thinking of Ann Coulter's comment, how surprisingly stupid this guy is, too. He really is. So, you know, John, I have two more questions because as I told you at the beginning, the hour goes by quickly. It goes by with all of my my guests because there's so much to talk about and it's just so fascinating. The details of the command center set up by Trump allies uh, to attempt to overturn the election, to me, I can only describe as chilling. 
It's plainly obvious that this was a coup attempt for which you wrote, and I quote, coups are not just tanks rolling in the street. It's an illegal attempt to overturn the will of the people to retain political power. And if the organizers of the failed coup are not punished, what's to stop them from attempting another? Now, most people don't understand why these people are not already on trial for sedition. We watched them do this in plain sight. Everyone was glued to their televisions. They have admitted that they knew that the charges they levied were bullshit. Still, not a single person has been charged with a crime. How is this possible? Well, uh, it is mystifying. The fact that there is not, not a grand jury proceeding on this, which would solve so many production problems and eliminate uh, some of the congressional uh, frustration with getting the information. And uh, what, while the uh, prosecutors wouldn't be a fact-finding body for the uh, Congress, in fact, that's what does happen. They informally do cooperate frequently with Congress. And I'm one who happens to think there should have been a grand jury long ago that is investigating this. Still still may happen. It may. There is a grand jury in the District of Columbia, but it's looking at the trespassers right now, not the organizers or the money or uh, those who allowed the uh, the insurrection to continue by failing to act. So uh, I think we're getting to the not only the end of your program, but the end of this story. Uh, and we'll see it surface within uh, before the Congress, uh, perchance, changes hands. I think that's very much on the minds of the Democrats. Indeed, it's one of their hopes that by getting this information out, uh, they can change minds about whether people want Republicans who want to destroy democracy back in power. But all right, as a final question, John, let me ask you this then. Jeff Timmer, who's a former GOP operative turned never Trump Republican and Lincoln Project consultant, tweeted a chilling statement last month. And I'm going to quote, the Democrats have no strategy to combat Republican radicalization and sustained assault on the foundations of democracy. The media fails to even comprehend what is taking place. America is in a perilous place. Now, part of their weaponry is a vast right-wing media apparatus that is capable of pumping out toxic propaganda at an industrial rate. The Democrats have nothing like that, nor should they. But how do you fight back against a weapon that is able to saturate the country and send millions of Americans down conspiracy-ridden rabbit holes from which they never return? I don't think there is a, a single answer. I think uh, in some of the people with whom I uh, work and uh, converse, many of them are very prominent Republicans who do not uh, kiss the ring uh, uh, with Donald, and they are quietly working in their own ways uh, to help preserve democracy. They're, they're, people aren't dumb as to what's going on, and the very concerns that we all have are getting much more attention below the surface than publicly. And I think that those uh, intentions will uh, help 
preserve our democracy. And as I say, I just think that you've got to trust the good sense of people at some point. And the, the radicalized element of the Republican Party is, is, is not more than 33% of the electorate at this point. Yeah, but it's not about it's not about that, because there are even Democrats right now that are so inundated with this misinformation, disinformation propaganda that they're basically their mind becomes mush to certain issues. For example, like what we were talking about earlier, Afghanistan, instead of, as you stated, Jen Psaki getting up there, if I was Biden, I would have Jen Psaki with or without COVID out there 24 seven showing the lives of 125,000 people that were taken out of Afghanistan, a place that we had been for 20 years at war. I would go to the houses of the people who received the COVID stimulus package money, showing that they're now doing okay. They're rebounding thanks to the fact that they had some money in their hands in order to feed their children themselves to pay, you know, to pay for electricity, heat, and so on. I mean, they do not have the apparatus. And it's funny because I started this podcast and obviously I am progressive, right? Um, I'm not liberal. Um, you know, I'm sort of a moderate progressive. And if you look to see whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Anchor, any of them, you start to see which of the podcasts that are at the top. I happen to be at the top 3%, thanks to all of my listeners of, on Maya Culpa and the fantastic guests that we get. I happen to be top 3% of all news podcasts. But if you look to see who is ahead of me, because I'm usually in the 50s or high 40s, low 50s, you know, I start to look to see who's at the top of the list. And you have people like Dan Bongiorno, you have Pod Save America, you have Candace Owens, you know, you have all of these conservatives, Sean Hannity, right? Um, You have all of these conservatives, and they are owning the airwaves, simply because maybe progressives and liberals don't listen to podcasts and they don't listen to news, but the conservatives do. And that's why you have a company like Newsmax or OAN or, you know, or Fox News that promotes this misinformation and this disinformation on a galactic scale, on a daily base, on a daily basis, you know, over and over and over again until that's all that you hear and that's all that you see. There has to be something that we can do in order to save the democracy. Because if things stay this way, and if you look at 1935, it's really no different. It's misinformation, disinformation campaigns that ended up creating the Third Reich. Michael, you, in fact, are doing it in nine days. You're going to even be freer, to use a phrase, uh, to do it even more aggressively than you are. And I think with what you're doing can be contagious, and it certainly is helpful. Well, I appreciate that. Um, I'm going to need a lot more help than just, uh, you know, what one man can do. We really do need to continue this movement, and that's why I'm continuously stressing to people, tell your friends about the podcast. I want them to hear people like yourself who talk about the issues and talk about the issues with a sense of reality and a sense of knowledge, um, not partisan nonsense uh, with the misinformation campaign going on. But John, let me thank you again for joining me on Mea Culpa. Your 
insight, your knowledge, you know, is just um, second to none. And so I thank you for spending the hour with me. Always a pleasure, Michael, and enjoyable conversation. Look forward to it in the future. The same. And thank you again, John. Be well. Thank you. And now for today's mea culpa. In speaking with John Dean, I am heartened to see a man unburdened by his own past. He seems long ago to have forgiven himself and made amends for his own transgressions. Dean proves that we don't have to be defined by the men we once were. I am no more the person who stood beside Donald Trump 11 years ago than John Dean is a Nixonian henchman. With just three days to go before I am officially a free man, I am in a reflective mood, thinking about what will come next for me as the metaphorical doors swing wide open. F. Scott Fitzgerald once wrote that there are no second acts in American lives. Yet, for John Dean, his second act is bigger and richer than the one that ultimately brought him down. As the decades waned and Dean continued to write books, he transformed himself in the public's mind from the notorious to highly esteemed. He became part of the permanent historical record. I am now faced with the empty page of my own second act. Much of it has already begun on the show as I use the platform given to me to make penance and warn Americans of the nightmares still to come. Next up, we're going to be taking the show on the road. Now that I can leave the home, Maya Culpa could very well be coming to a theater near you. The idea is to take the movement we created together right here in the safe space of the show and take it all over the country. So I hope that you'll join me. In the coming months and years, my second act will be defined by my reaction to this current political moment. What history records will be the struggle between democracy and authoritarianism, between true freedom and the violence of the mob. And I hope that you will join me out there. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. 